Welcome to Slauson Girl Speaks. I'm your host, Slauson Girl, bringing you world news with a South Central state of mind. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with Jaye. He is a Los Angeles native. He's also a lawyer, and he's someone that has experienced a very live and personal situation regarding institutional racism in the county of San Bernardino. And this situation has actually led to charges for Jaye. So I wanted to have this time to talk to Jaye about everything that has transpired and just get his feelings about what has happened and what he plans to do moving forward. So Jaye, how are you today? I'm doing all right, you know, as well as a black man in America, what a upcoming sentencing can do. What date is that? Uh, November 6th. November 6th. So let's talk a little bit about what happened briefly, and then we'll kind of circle back on yeah. that. Well, ultimately, it was a day I did not have any court appearances, uh, so I chose that day to go out to San Bern- Bernardino on a case that I had picked up out there. And I went to retrieve the initial discovery as the San Bernardino district attorney has a practice of not turning over initial discovery at arraignment. So I went to retrieve it uh, later. I meet with my client and go over the discovery and go to the scene. And then before I headed back, because the court had set a date that did not work with my calendar, uh, before the appearance attorney I got there, had gotten there that would have set a date that worked with my calendar. I was just inquiring on if there was a process for me to change the date without having to send another appearance attorney. Um, And so I called before I left out to San Bernardino. I was told by a male voice that picked up the phone that that request needed to be handled in the clerk's office. So when I went into the courthouse, I went to the clerk's office. Uh, the clerk in the clerk's office told me I needed to handle it in the courtroom. So I went up to the courtroom, <clears throat> walked in, received a phone call as I was walking in from a client, picked it up, answered it, uh, walked up to the clerk's desk, which is beyond the bar in the working area of the courtroom, and was ultimately disbelieved that I was an attorney. Uh, They claim it was based on how I was dressed. I had on uh, some, like, moccasin-style shoes, some red slacks, and some uh, uh, shirt that was white in the chest area and had dashiki print on the lower front part of the shirt as well as on the back part of the shirt. And um, because of that disbelief that I could actually be where I was and... Although I told them and tried to show them I was pushed, I was ordered to leave the courtroom, uh, not allowed to speak with the clerk. Based off solely how you were dressed? Well, that's what they said. They, You know, the, the white officer, Deputy Barry, tried to make it seem as if I was acting irate or, you know, it's the, the way I was dressed plus the way I was acting, but... You know, there was a black deputy in there, and her testimony at trial was that when I came in, it was like, my demeanor was like friendly. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, 
was went out to the vestibule with the deputy who was a bailiff. The white deputy Barry is a um, custody deputy, and while in there, I uh, expressed my shared the case number, expressed my displeasure with Deputy Barry using strong language. Uh, and what's the? Are, are we following FCC rules? Or? Oh no, it's okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I told him he fucked up when he put his hands on me. And I was, I was going to come after him with everything I have and everything that I learned in law school. Mm-hmm. And after that law school comment, I started to say something else, and he shot me with the taser. Oh, wow. Uh, now, the, the taser, I didn't feel the whole shot. Uh, and I was about three to four feet in front of Deputy Sutton at the time, and Deputy Barry was to my left, Deputy Sutton's right, about three to four feet to her right and behind her, a couple feet behind her. So I was at least at the closest about six feet from Deputy Barry. I'm five foot three. My arms are no more than, you know, a foot and a half, two feet long. Um, And, uh, you know, I was not in arm's distance of him. I didn't approach him. And I wasn't even looking at him when he shot me with the taser. He just really couldn't accept that. A young black man was relatively young. Black man was talking to him in that regard. And so uh, he shot me with that taser, tackled me, arrested me, cuffed me. Uh, They gave me a citation. I signed it. They still took me up to the county jail to book me and release. And that was January 10th, 2019. And September 28th, 2020, I was ultimately convicted of a charge of delaying or obstructing an officer in the lawful performance of their duty. And the act that I was convicted of, as the judge allowed the prosecution to enumerate nine different acts. So the act that I was convicted of was um, after the second time Deputy Barry pushed me. He put his hand on my chest, and I, uh, I put my hand up, touching his hand, letting him know my displeasure with that. He moved his hand down, and but he described it as if I whacked his hand. But there is a video, and you can see when he moved his hand down, there was no response, no reaction from him as if he had just got struck by me. Uh, and But at any rate, you know, that particular act did not delay him. He was not doing anything that that act delayed him from doing or obstructed him from doing, but... The jury felt it was wrong that I did it and convicted me. And the couple jurors that I talked to, their perspective was that I, um, because I moved his hand off my chest, that alerted him to uh, me more, and that made him focus on me, which obstructed him from doing his other duties, although he claims what he did to me was uh, in accordance with his duty of securing the courtroom. So there were no black jurors in the jury pool, and the incident happened in the San Bernardino County Justice Center in San Bernardino. Uh, The trial was in the Rancho Cucamonga Courthouse, and uh, although Rancho Cucamonga is about 9% black, and 10% Asian out of the pool of 24 there were about 5 or 6 Asians and 0 blacks 
And uh, yeah, they convicted me. And since one juror has sent an email to the judge, DA, and my attorney saying they messed up, they shouldn't have voted guilty, but you know, they did on that day. Is that right? So that was actually going to be one of my questions the uh, the diversity of the jury. And from what you just said, you know, there was a lack of diversity because there was no black people. However, yeah. when the when you talk about diversity from these institutions and these corporations, they always feel that they have diversity because they have, you know, um, POC folks or whatever. Yeah. But the a lot of the POC folks have these anti-black perspectives that have been, you know, instilled in them from mainstream America. Yeah, I mean, people come here, they assimilate, and uh, in the foundation of the United States of America is the belief that black people are inherently inferior, that white people are inherently superior. So when you assimilate and take on those beliefs of the United States, and this isn't um, just me talking, you know, theorizing this. Mm-hmm. This is documented, documented in they had theories, the Declaration books. of Independence when the first line of the second paragraph says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal uh, with unalienable rights endowed by the creator among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. So when you look at that and three of the five men credited with drafting that held slaves at the time it was drafted And Benjamin Franklin had previously held slaves. Only John Adams did not hold slaves. Uh, That shows that we were not considered men. Right. So we are inferior. And as long as that document is the founding document of this nation, and the founding date of this nation is July 4th, 1776, our inferior status is the status of our people in this nation. Mm. Definitely. So when you got, you know, charged, did you ever envision that it would get to the point of a conviction? I knew it was possible. I didn't think it would happen, Mm -hmm. but I knew it was possible. Mm -hmm. Um, But as we were going through the trial, I kind of saw the writing on the wall, Mm -hmm. rulings that were made, um, things that were allowed to be said, things that were kept from being said. Uh, evidence that was disallowed from being presented. Mm. Um, you know, there, there was a lot. Uh, and then, you know, you see the jury walk in and there's no black people on the jury, mm-hmm. uh, despite the amount of black people in the area. Just let me know, okay, this is, they're, they're going all the way out mm. on this one. Right. So, would you say that there was um, some racial bias, you think, in this case? Well, it would have had to be, because I'm an attorney who was doing the job. There's there's no evidence that was presented at that trial to contradict the fact that I'm an attorney. Mm -hmm. There was no evidence uh, to contradict the fact that attorneys can be in the part of the courtroom that I was in that I got pushed from. Mm -hmm. So, the fact that I was convicted for removing the hand after the second time being pushed lets me know that that jury had to envision me as a criminal Mm. beforehand. And so 
if I had a right to be there, I shouldn't have been pushed. If I shouldn't have been pushed, then I have a right to defend myself against this violence perpetrated against me by Deputy Barry. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have that right in their mind. Mm. And, you know, it was a criminal act to exist. So when I did what the words on paper says that a citizen is allowed to do, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, they let me know. They didn't view me as that. They viewed me as inferior. And so basically they're saying I had to allow Deputy Barry to push me. Mm. And But the thing is that charge, PC-148A1, which is the statute that I'm charged under, mm-hmm. I can be charged under resisting, delaying, or obstructing. Now, the resisting is a physical thing. Mm-hmm. Delaying and obstructing can be physical, but it's usually going to be um, a, a resisting. Uh, but the, the way it can be physical, I guess, is if the officer is trying to arrest someone else, and then I use physical force to try and stop that officer from arresting someone else. That's the way I can obstruct an officer or delay an officer physically. Uh, but in this particular circumstance, by him having his hand on me, if he had the authority to do such, then I would have been seized. And me removing his hand would have been resisting that seizure, would have, which would have been under the resisting theory. But I was not... Uh, they didn't pursue the resisting theory, only the delaying or obstructing. So the three seconds it took for him to put his hand on my chest, my hand on his, and him to remove his hand is what I was convicted for. Uh, Once again, with them saying that that uh, heightened his awareness of me, and because of that heightened awareness of me, he couldn't do his other duty of manning the lockup, and that's how he was obstructed. So moving forward... What are your options? Can you appeal it, you know? Yeah, we can definitely appeal. And based on the, the state of the law, mm-hmm. uh, it I, I should not have, well, I should not have been pushed. Period. I should not have been tased. Should not have been tackled. Should not have been arrested. Should not have been booked. Should not have been charged, prosecuted, or convicted. The fact that all those things happen obviously um, makes me feel that the worst can continue to happen. Uh, But my options, I I have to wait until I'm sentenced to appeal the conviction. So, you know, come November, you know, you go to court, get your sentencing and what you face up to a year. Yeah, a year in the county at halftime, so. Six months. Yeah. Is this a felony or a misdemeanor charge? It's a misdemeanor. It's a misdemeanor. So, say, you know, they come and they sentence you to, you know, the max, you know, a year and a half, uh, a year with half in the county. When you appeal it, that does that delay the time that you have to turn yourself in? Well, I could get uh, bail on appeal. Um, or released on or on appeal. Okay, okay, I um, see, I see. But you would basically have to be, like, booked and all that into the sentence? Uh, yeah, more than likely. Mm. Uh, well, first and foremost, I, you know, I just want to say that, like, I apologize that this is even happening to you as a black man that not only, you know, practices law and studied law, just the landscape and what's happening 
around the world right now, especially when you have, you know, all of these, you know, companies and organizations that are acknowledging, you know, a lot of like what black people have been saying and they're, you know, associating themselves with Black Lives Matter. But we see these instances where black people are shown exactly how the system feels about them and how, you know, white folks and a lot of POC feels about us, you know. So just like how do you feel knowing or how do you feel the fact that this happened within national unrest regarding black lives in America? And Well, it shows at least those 12 people. I don't put, um, like, there were about... Five or six whites, I think about three Asians, three Latinos, three or four Latinos. Uh, I don't, there, I've, I've had too many conversations with white, Asian, Latino people that understand uh, it was wrong what mm-hmm. happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, to give a blanket statement like the whites, Asians, or Latinos all feel a certain, uh, feel that I am less than mm-hmm. and deserving of uh criminal conviction for removing someone's hand off my chest that should have never pushed me in the first place. Um, But, I mean, obviously there's enough out there. I'd be foolish to act like that's not the belief. And a lot of people's belief of our inferiority and criminality is so ingrained. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that it's uh, a belief in our inferiority. It's just their reality that this is who we are. And so... You know, uh, I'm not surprised, though, because I'm a black man. And the black men in this state make up barely over 3% of the state population. But we make up 27% of the state prison population. And so when living in that system and getting wrapped up in that system, it's not surprising Mm. that a black man would be convicted for uh, something that he did that was not a crime. Mm. You know, and that's what it is. But that's what goes to show and I think this is the greatest example. The the good thing about it is that all throughout the process, you know, I'm seeking help from different people. And, no, you're not going to get convicted. They they never going to convict you. They never going to convict you. And so, you know, once the good thing, once I, I was convicted, it was, um, it's, it's good that a lot of people have jumped into action and started doing things to try and work on my behalf. Uh, but it, it took my conviction to let them know how real it is for myself, which makes it real for them as well. Right. Because I, I you know, I'm a homeowner, taxpayer, mm. and after, you know, just doing my taxes, I got the extension. And you just feel like a real, uh, feel like a bitch paying for the system that convicted you. Mm. You know, it, it, it really makes you feel that way. You know, I do it because I have to do it, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes you feel real bad that you you your taxes pay for these police that violate us, and, and we have and no whatnot. choice. But to I do. mean, we uh, we could leave, you know. Where where do you think is an ideal spot for you know us to go? All over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think we should go to one place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we should disperse throughout the world. I think you know, uh, like Cape Town to me is like L.A. in Africa. So L.A. people would probably relate real well to Cape Town. Is that right? Whereas Atlanta people might 
relate better to Johannesburg or Chicago mm-hmm. people might relate better to, to Accra or, you know, all these various cities. And not just in Africa, there's Central America, there's South America, mm-hmm. there's Asia, there's the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. But just going somewhere where society as a whole does not have a documented history of seeking to suppress, oppress us. Uh, I think that's something that we should look at, especially since so many in the descendant of enslaved African community uh, are Christian and followers of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And of all the people I've heard of or studied in the world, we're most, uh, our experience is most likened to the Israelites of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that story right in the second uh, book of the Bible, Exodus, you know, Pharaoh was... The the Israelites got free in Egypt. Mm. Pharaoh kept messing with them. God said, let me send these plagues. Maybe that'll straighten them up. Pharaoh kept messing with them. The only thing that got Pharaoh off their back is when they left. And so what we're trying to do here in these United States of America has never been done. It's never, we don't have anywhere on earth where we have a, uh, Nation in which the former enslaved are living harmoniously with the former enslaver. Mm. And so what we're trying to do has never been done. So for that to happen, it needs to be a total restructuring. Like there needs to be a new declaration of independence, a new constitution, a new national anthem, a new flag. Mm. And, you know, just seeing the way the country responded to uh, Kaepernick's protests on the flag, yeah. I don't think this country is in a position that they would actually uh, do something to change it. Hmm. Interesting. So what would you like to see for black folks? I guess you just kind of said it. Would you like to see Hmm. us, you know, leave America and go set up and join different communal communities abroad? Well, that's definitely uh, an option, I think, that needs to be seriously considered across the board. Uh, Also, I just think um, a lot of things can be relieved. Well, it's it's tough because, you know, you say, hey, let's just all support black business, support each other. And then the thought of Black Wall Street comes to your head, uh, Jackson Ward and, and Richmond and all these other centers of economic black economic wealth that were physically destroyed Mm -hmm. through violence so it's not like we haven't tried it you know we had the freedmen's bureau and the freedmen's bank uh shortly after slavery we had the black banks and we've tried it and um so we either have to try that strategy again uh but the i think declaring ourselves one, um, a a separate nation, not giving up any of the rights because the 14th Amendment says whoever is born here has rights as a citizen. Now, also, I, I believe um, we have about three-fifths of the rights of the citizens. There's some rights, you know, we, we'll have and will be respected, but I believe black people in America have about three-fifths of the rights that are afforded to the full-fledged Americans. Um and and so we we should unite under that, but uniting is is very difficult because we we can't really trust each other. It's it's difficult to trust each other. We have so many history, so much history. How many slave results would have uh, 
been successful to a greater degree had there not been somebody that snitched on the revolt or mm. so on and so forth. And those kind of things have just kept going. But uh, ultimately, while we're here, my call to action for all black people is to go out of your way if you have to to spend your money with your people. Let the dollar circulate in our community. Um, and number two is mentally, physically, and spiritually prepare ourselves uh, for any um, physical assault that may come upon us. So every black person uh, of age should have a firearm and be trained in the use of it, but not just firearms, um, boxing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those kind of things. Uh, we should all be training and getting to that level. Um, and and I think if we did do that, one, we would find that, I, because I am of the belief that we are in a time in America where there's more so than any time prior that the old traditional racism of the actual belief in the inferiority of black people is in the minds and hearts of much less white people than at any time before. And so there's a lot of white people that look at us as, you know, full-fledged Americans and would choose our side if we're just simply fighting against injustice. They would, and it wouldn't even be our side. It'd just be the side of justice. Uh, so when people say it's a fight that we can't win, um, uh, I don't, I'm not sure that's true because we have many allies out there, but we don't know how much, right? The same way you may have known a friend of yours who was in an abusive relationship, right? And you've told them about it and they stayed. So you put your hands up. But the second that friend takes the steps to remove themselves from that relationship, you'll do everything in your power to help them remove themselves and get on their feet. Uh, but as long as they stay, you're not going to engage with them because they're choosing to stay in that abusive relationship. And so that's what I think uh, a lot of people in America and around the world and uh, will support us. And that's why it's important for us to identify as a nation within this state of the United States of America uh, based on our common identity which is the descendants of enslaved Africans, for those of us who are. You know, we're here in Los Angeles, a bunch of Belizeans, Jamaicans, Africans, and we're all black on a, on a uh, pan-ethnic sense. We, we are all black and connected as descendants of Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, but the same way when I do go to South Africa, my friends that are Zulu are Zulu. My friends that are Xhosa, and that's, uh, I, I rarely get the click, but it's a click in that. <laughs> Um, uh, Zonga, they, Twana, they are from their tribe. They're all South African, mm -hmm. but they're from their tribe. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that identifying for ourselves, our tribe. Uh, and I don't think that separates us, um, uh, from the, the pan-ethnic identity of, uh, descendant of Africa, but it is important for us to determine who we are the same way it's important for you know, my, my first cousins, as much as I love them, they're from a, their mother and father, and I'm from my mother and father. We're one family in a sense, but I'm a, if, if it came down to it, I would probably, uh, well, I, I would go with my nuclear family before my cousins, even though we're all family. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I think that's right to do if, you know, 
considering your nuclear family's cool. Like, you right, know, right. They toxic then. Yeah, yeah. Then that. I'm going with the, uh, I go completely outside the family if everybody toxic. But right. that's how I view about it. I don't think a lot of people like, well, if if you, you know, just focus on the descendant of enslaved, then you separating us from them and them and Marcus Garvey wouldn't be able to get reparations. Mm-hmm. But what Marcus Garvey does have is Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And you, if you if anybody know Jamaicans, that flag fly, the Belizean flag fly, they they proud of that. Right. We don't have that flag that we can fly and be proud of. We we if we fly the American flag, we're flying the flag that our ancestors were enslaved under. Right. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about college. Mm-hmm. Um. So what high school did you go to? Uh. The Westchester High School. Okay, you was up there with the bougie folks at Westchester. Well, you call it bougie for people <laughs> who kidding. parents cared enough <laughs> <laughs> to, to invest to, to get in them future. somewhere. Huh. Yeah, yeah. We had like, I think when I was at Westchester, somebody counted up. It was like forty-five different zip codes represented <laughs> at hmm. our school. Mm. And yeah, it was eighty eighty-five percent black school and like an eighty-five percent white neighborhood. It was mm. unique. That's what's up. Yeah. So Westchester was cool for you going there. Yeah, it, it was it was great for me um, because it gave me connections throughout the entire city because mm. all those zip codes were represented. Okay. Uh, and because we weren't in anybody's hood, like Crenshaw's mm. in somebody's hood, Inglewood right. in somebody's hood, right, Morningside, right, right. we weren't in anybody's hood. So everybody was outside of their hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was easier for us to come together, focus, and uh, you know, it's it's now, I, I have to be honest, it is like on the local L.A. tip, like like the best network to be mm. a part of. And you you get rooted to these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we go deep enough. Regina King is in the Westchester Network. You mm. know, she's one of the most boss women <laughs> in the industry, period. Yeah. Uh, writing, producing, directing, acting. Yes. So you look at those things, it's, it's a great network, and I'm happy I had that experience, uh, and I was a very active class president, uh, hey, senior, junior out. year, football player, basketball player. Mm. You know, I, that's my claim to fame in sports. Like, I played JV at Westchester. Like, yeah. and, you know, we even had, like, five, six NBA players out of one public school gym. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. Definitely, definitely. That's what's up. So, at what point did you get interested in, like, law? Well, I grew up... Um, Pan-Africanist, you know, my name oh, is you grew J.A. Up. Okay. Uh, the, the first uh, political action I recall taking was um, uh, as a child, as a small child, elementary school age, I uh, just recall we couldn't wear Reeboks. Well, and this is like preschool, kindergarten. We couldn't wear Reebok. We couldn't go to Shell Gas because they supported apartheid. Mm. And in our household, we didn't support apartheid. Mm-hmm. So, and and I think that's another reason why I feel so connected to South Africa. That's the, you know, that's where it started for me. Right. Uh, but then I learned about, I, I feel the best advocate uh, America or the most articulate uh, advocate black America has ever had is Malcolm X. So in third grade, I was doing um, my, my historical project. I did it on Malcolm X. Mm. Uh, uh and so that's been my orientation for as far as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Then uh, 96 comes around, I'm in the eighth grade, 
they mess around and put the OJ case on TV for a whole year. And I get introduced to a brother by the name of Johnny Cochran. Okay. And after seeing that, I said, I want to do that the mm. way he does it. So, you know, I like to pride myself in the suits I wear. And that's a cold thing. Like, you know, I, I usually wear suits. I was, the, the day I got arrested, I wasn't planning on going inside of a courtroom. Um, one, for one, my, my attire, that's how I dress typically. And uh, so just for me, that that's how I dress. Like today I have on a Hampton shirt and black-owned business. So mm. I support designers that uh, support black um, be, I, I support black designers. Like it's a lifestyle for me. Like I go out of my way. If there's a business right next to me serving food and there's a business two miles away that's black-owned, I'm going to drive two miles because hmm. that's what I do, nine times out of ten at least. Right, right, so right. like today, I'm, I'm in Yeezys on the feet, mm-hmm. a Hampton sweater and a Hampton shirt. I mean, Hampton sweats and Hampton shirt. That's, you know, how I do. But even still, I looked at the uh, clothes I had on. You know, the shoes, they were uh, they were sneakers uh, or tennis shoes. They were closed-toed, YSL was the designer of those shoes. My shirt was Jekka, handmade in the Gambia. So it was high-quality clothing that I had on. Mm-hmm. And and one thing I want to point out is since COVID, they've relaxed the uh, business attire for the courtrooms. And so all that's telling us is, is what COVID made us do is only deal with what's, what's necessary. So it shows that having a suit on was not ever necessary in a courtroom to do your job. It was tradition, but it, it wasn't necessary. It's not like the NBA where you have to have on this team's uniform to participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if it is, while I'm in trial and gaze, when LeBron goes up to the Laker facility just to grab a file or do something uh, that's not related to playing in the game, he's not going to have on his game uniform. Right. And that's what it was like for me, just running into the office to handle something. When I did ultimately get it handled, it took five minutes. Mm. And, it, you know, so. It escalated and turned into something that it was never supposed to yeah, be. Just because, and they, they both testified, they did not believe me. I said it a bunch of times. They did not believe I was an attorney. And they said it's based off the way I'm dressed, the way I'm acting. And in their minds, I was irate because when you, when they played, when my attorney played the video back for him, it's like, so he's talking about the same tone that we're talking here today, yeah? Right. But in the moment, they felt like I was something else. Why? Because they looked at me as a criminal. So they admitted their racial bias, you know, by saying that they didn't believe, yeah. you know. And saying I had on tribal clothing. Hmm. Yeah. So, Jaye, um, just let the people know where they can find you and how they can support, um, you know, your case and just you in general, just as a black man out here just trying to do the right thing. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, uh First and foremost, right now, the the three ways I'm asking for support or seeking support, uh, we have uh, a fundraiser. And the the purpose of the fundraiser is now we have to fight the appeal. Um, We, you know, we got a word from a juror that she felt she did the wrong, he or she felt they did the wrong thing. Um, And so we have to investigate that. Uh, And there's a likelihood I could go to jail for six months and my bills won't stop just because I'm in jail. So, uh, to cover any expenses while I'm in custody. So we have the GoFundMe going on. There's a lot of people that want to, uh, 
um, donate directly through Cash App, Zelle, Venmo, uh, and they can reach out to me through social media. My I'm on the California Bar website. You can find my email. Uh, my name is J A A Y E P E R S O N hyphen L Y N N. My Instagram is Lincoln Lawyer LA. My Facebook is under my name. Uh, my Twitter is J A E S Q. Um, and this is, you know, I was doing all that before I realized you should have the same thing across the board, like, mm, okay. you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Right, right. Uh, but so it's the fundraising. Uh, we have a petition. Uh, it's close to 2,500 signatures. We want to get it at least 5,000 by um, sentencing and then uh, a letter writing campaign. Mm. And I was initially asking people to write letters to the judge and the and those letters would go as part of our mitigation package that we submit to the judge for sentencing mm -hmm. and then also letters to the DA of San Bernardino County Jason Anderson who ran on a progressive anti-racist platform mm -hmm. who was aware of the case and knows of the case and knows that it was wrong but still allowed the prosecution to go forward uh now I'm I'm I think because all of that is within San Bernardino County and I think as long as it's all within San Bernardino County. I won't get a lot of uh, positive feedback. Mm -hmm. So um, we're now reaching out to the Attorney General, uh, Xavier Becerra, seeing who in his office, because they do have the power to take over the case and right. do what's right. Uh, so, you know, reaching out on the state level, the Attorney General and the Governor, and writing letters on, their be, uh, on my behalf to them. Um, because at the end of the day, it could affect my license to practice law. Now, the California Bar has to make their own independent uh, determination that I did something that uh, was a violation of moral turpitude to discipline me. But um, the the conviction creates a presumption that I did do that. And uh, I think when they look at it and look at the state of the law, that they they cannot connect it, but if I have a judge the same as the judge that I had during my trial and somebody prosecuting it the same like the prosecutor I had during my trial, then maybe they could find that I was in violation. What was the name of the judge during your sentencing? Uh, Mary E. Fuller. A woman? Yeah. Caucasian lady? Yeah. Shouts out to Karen. We see you. <laughs> I'm sorry that that happened. And, and, um, and DA, uh, Jana Burrell, married to a black man, too. Yeah. Uh, the DA is Caucasian lady married to a white man? No, nah, Latina. Oh, Latina. Yeah. Okay, well, shout out to you, too. Um, well, definitely um, want to share your story, amplify your story and what is happening and what is going on. People, please get involved and help support Jaye. Contact him if you would like to donate. Um, and just, you know, just be aware of what's happening to people yeah. in our community, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I thank you for this opportunity. I of did want to say that and and lastly i just want to point out that um this is the greatest example i've had in my life of my true status in this nation and so i used to uh when I, I speak a lot to youth and i tell them about their rights and i used to talk to them saying hey you you have a right to do this this is what the first amendment and the second amendment and the fourth amendment and the fifth amendment um but now before i talk to them about rights i talk to them about their status when I'm talking to black children, I, I have to let them know you are a full-fledged human being and you do have uh, protections and rights by God. But here in this land, you are an inferior being 
And we have to know that. And so I was that day acting under the presumption that I had equal rights. I don't. Now I know, you know, so I'd probably approach that situation differently now because it's been made clear to me I am of an inferior status in this nation. And I think we should understand that. And that may help us uh, relieve ourselves from conflicts like this. Mm. And and it's not being uh, cowardice. It's just understanding you're behind enemy lines mm. and being smart about it. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Well, black men, you're never inferior to me. You know, I just want to say that I appreciate you. And, um, yeah, you know, we, we're going to just fight this and just amplify what is happening. So, you know, just take care and just know you have my support. Definitely and, appreciate um, it. I'll see you out there on the front lines. Definitely. Where we met. <laughs> that part. All right. Definitely. Thank you.